Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. I am a warrior so that my son may be a merchant so that his son may be a poet, a quote attributed to John Quincy Adams, though it's quite possible that's a paraphrase. To go from being a gangbanger in Othello, Washington, to a bigger gang called the U.S. Army, almost dying three times in the theater of war, to find himself a poet, interviewing undocumented people and telling their stories in lyric verse in Spanish and English. This is the story of Ricardo Ruiz, and it's told in his debut book, We Had Our Reasons, or Teníamos Nuestras Razones in His Lengua Materna. Ricardo, it's a real pleasure to have you on this program. Paul, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here to be able to share um, the collection. And your life story. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, your childhood, your war experience would be the fodder for a series of interviews, uh, considering all the experiences you've had, which of which I knew very little. But the new book is the news for today. Do you remember the moment when you decided to become a poet? I recently discovered poetry. It was 2016 when the form really grasped my attention. I was struggling with my mental health and PTSD after transitioning from service. Um, I came out to the University of Washington after attending the community college, and my intent was to go to business school. But taking the Holocaust in film while at UW really affected my identity to art and my approach to art. What poetry was doing in my own mental health life, I began to see its greater role and I transitioned, um, deciding not to apply to business school and I applied to earn a degree in creative writing and here I am now, a published author, a poet. Raking in the bucks. <laughs> Do you remember the moment when you decided to interview migrants and turn those interviews into poems? I was taking a class on for heritage language speakers. As I like to say that I don't have a true first language. I grew up speaking Spanish in my home. I can't recall really ever having a conversation with my mother in English. Yet... Now I believe I am more fluent in English. So the university provided a class for speakers like myself who do understand the language, are fluent in the language, but might not understand all the nuances of grammar and the fundamentals. The professor, though, was doing a lot of identity work throughout this portion of the class. And... I began to realize how little I knew of my parents' own experience leaving Mexico and coming to Eastern Washington to work as migrant workers. That sparked my desire to want to learn to document and record these stories for my own children. The John Quincy Adams quote is beautiful because that was the impotence to this book is collecting these stories of my parents for my children so when they come of age and want to know why their grandparents made this decision, this information that is so perishable would be lost as 
a project grows, I began to realize that these stories are not just unique to my own household, but to there are so many commonalities throughout the community in which I am from and also immigration as a whole. So that's where it really started to come about. A little bit farther down the road, I realized that there was a point to not only tell my parents' and that older generation story, but also the first generation immigrant like myself. Though I was born here, my experience varies greatly from some of my neighbors and friends who are undocumented, who are dreamers, brought over to this country as children and how these decisions that we had no agency in really affects the course of our life. Amazing. Tell us about the process of creating the poems in the book. Walk us through how you decided to interview someone, you know, uh, I mean, how that all played out. I'm guessing that some people said, I'm not going to interview for the record, and then how it turned in to a poem in Spanish and English. Take us through the whole process. So this process was developed by myself and my editor, Francis McHugh of Pulley Press, and we've coined it the Pulley Method. One of the thoughts that I had when I was starting this project was the words of Wordsworth in his preface to the lyrical ballads when he talks about writing about the common man in their common language, in their common tongue. Though written at the late 1700s, at the beginning of the Romantic period, his words still found resonance in my heart of the importance about writing about the rural man in the common tongue. So going and conducting interviews to begin with, capturing the words of a storyteller, because the stories in my community are beautiful and powerful, but a lot of people don't have the ability to write poetry, though I feel every person can be a poet to be able to do the work to document, to collect, is, is a unique task. This took me a year and a half to be able to get the book to the point where it was ready to publish. So I reached out first to some of the leaders in my community, to my pastor down at the church that I attended when I lived in Eastern Washington. I spoke to my mother who opened up doors with her friends who helped raise me and teach me. And I also utilized the connections I had made during my time at the community college and friendships that I had to tell the story of the first generation immigrant experience for the dreamers and undocumented friends of mine, their experience, but then they opened the door to their parents. I did have a family friend who decided to not go on the record, but he did share the story of his family. And I had some friends who have powerful stories that they would begin to tell me their story, but later chose to not participate in the collection because of the hurt that they still carry from the trauma that comes along with with migration. Yeah, the, the stories in the book are intense. Maybe we should have you read one of the poems. I think starting with the first one on page four, and I would love it if uh, this one 
you could read in both Spanish and English, so we can get some sense of, of how that works. A sleeping bag and a semi, Centavo and Ricardo. I came from Mexicali across the border. There was work for me in Arizona. I crawled into the gray sleeping bag, hearing the zipper, feeling the tape tighten around my legs and body. I became a gray balloon floating into the storage compartment where the truckers kept the chains. My mind clouded by the smoke. I met the sky again in Nogales. I was born in California, so I could have walked, but I didn't know. I was bound up in not knowing. Un saco de dormir y un semi, centavo y ricardo. Vine de Mexicali, cruzando la frontera. Había trabajo para mí en Arizona. Me metí en el saco de dormir color gris, oyendo el cierre, sintiendo la cinta apretar alrededor de mis piernas y mi cuerpo. Me convertí en un globo gris, flotando. Hacía el compartimiento de carga donde el camonero guardaba las cadenas. Mi mente envuelta en humo. Vuelvo a encontrar con el cielo en Nogales. Nací en California. Así que podía haber caminado, pero no lo sabía. Estaba atado al no saber. <laughs> that phrase, when I meet the sky again in Nogales, I mean, that is poetry. That struck me from the, you know, from the very first poem in the book. I'm wondering how a phrase like that might be casual speech in one language, but then sound like poetry in another. It's one of the unique experiences as a multilingual person that I get to see. There's so many, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, I don't know, colloquies? Uh, Colloquialisms. Yeah, colloquialisms that when they translate, they just don't sound right. And you hear it, and when you go to write it in poetry, it adds a poetic dimension in the direct translation that's fun and exciting and unique. This poem in particular, it's a story kind of a reverse migration that this individual was born in America but taken back to Mexico as a child and then lived in poverty and had to work as a child, eventually being recruited by drug cartels, later smuggled back into America to work for the drug cartels, yet the whole time he's an American citizen. It's, it's a very interesting way to open up the book because it's not just a one-direction form of travel. Right. There's a poem, This Was Our Life in Mexico. You were late parents who used ripped shirts as diapers. And I, I just want to know about the challenge of being a poet, being a member of this community, being able to report things like this, and much worse than that particular thing, like child drug dealers, like you were saying, but how to retain a certain sense of detachment that's required to get the poem down and to get it down without sentimentality. I don't know if I could really do that. Honestly, Paul, um, I spent hours in tears in front of my computer. I would write late at night 
when my partner would be in bed and many of those nights were spent with tears streaming down my face because I still don't know if I have truly done justice to the stories that have been shared with me. I am careful with my words to say the stories that I have written because I, I haven't written them. I have merely worked to transform the stories that were shared, being so precious and so caring for them, trying to do my best to honor the, the work or trying to honor what the storytellers have shared with me, but still use creativity to bring them into verse and lyric. The, the weight of it, it's more than I can handle. I am blown away sometimes when I read the collection just of the power that the pieces come to. And it's kind of a daze that I really was able to, to do this. Page 32, there's a poem entitled... The general on the battlefield leading the troops. I'd love it if you could read in Spanish first and, and English and we could talk about it. Okay. El general lidera sus tropas en el campo de batalla, José y Ricardo. ¿De dónde han venido estos guerreros rojos y negros? ¿Cómo saben cazar los pulgones que... Se alimentan de la pulpa suculenta de la gala. Yo estaba listo para dirigir mis homoglos de lunares, enviarlos a la batalla. Mantengan las líneas, Catarinas. Protegen la fruta. El sello orgánico nos necesita. La cubeta zumbaba cuando mi madre me lo pasó. Pon atención. Estás trabajando. <laughs> the general on the battlefield leading the troops, Jose and Ricardo. Where did these red and black warriors come from? How do they know to search out the aphids that feed off the succulent tissue of the gala? I stood charged to lead my spotted counterparts, sending them out to battle. Hold the line, ladybugs. Protect the fruit. The organic label needs us. The orange bucket hummed as my mother handed it to me. Pon atención. Estás trabajando. <laughs> I love it. You know, uh, for for the person maybe not in your community who is experienced. Here, this is the teapot. Right here. Oh. For a person not in your community you. uh, who, uh, you know, maybe... Maybe does it? Maybe follows the issue, hears about it, doesn't like Ron DeSantis and and their stunts, you know that kind of thing. But then when they hear organic foods involved, it becomes a lot more real for them, doesn't it? <laughs> it's part of the reason why um, this poem felt so important to write. This uh, this poem was written kind of uniquely from the other poems in the collection. So you asked earlier about the process. The interviews would be conducted. I would transpose the interview to both English and Spanish. Some interviews were conducted in English, some in Spanish. So depending, they were still both uh, transposed in both languages. Then I would go through and select sections of the interviews that I felt had poetic merit. 
and then work to develop poems from there where once the poems reached a point they would go back to the storyteller make sure that the storyteller was okay with what was going on and then once I got that okay they were moved to more of a final polished element once we got to that final element of the poem they went back to the storyteller to make sure that the storyteller once again was okay with my interpretation because changes have to be made in order to fit poetic verse and lyric and just once again ensuring that this process was done ethically with consideration to the people who are so generous to lend the stories. Well, Jose, the storyteller on this one, shared with me the story of his second day working as a 12-year-old boy in the fields of eastern Washington with his mother. And he didn't tell me this story exactly as it written. As it was written, he told me about how he was working in the organic orchard, how he was putting ladybugs on apples because that's the way you deal with pests. And in my creative process, I sat and really imagined what it would be like for a 12-year-old, for a young man to be working and how these two different roles find a way to coincide with a boy being imaginative and playful on a summer morning to being out working and how it fits. So you have him with that imagination. You see that fruitful joy that comes with youth then transitioning quickly to the end where the mother appears and shows that, hey, this isn't a playtime it is time to work pay attention we're working pay attention we're working that's right not all the stories are about friends and associates and people you met there are poems of your own youth and experience of selling drugs and being in gangs and so that adds a different dimension to the book what was the decision like to include uh, personal mythology personal experience in a book like this it's as a member of the community I was raised here too my parents worked in the same fields as the storytellers um, it was always intended that my parents would be the final interview that I conducted yet my father passed away during the writing of the book and um, I didn't want to to ask my mother to bear her soul on these experiences while grieving but it still didn't change the fact that I was a young, I was a boy when they were working in the fields. And um, that experience isn't unique to myself. And having that first hand knowledge, it is what poems are based out of in, in for some authors. So it shows in some ways the connection that I truly do have as a member of the community that I'm not detached, but you know, the reasons that people make that choice, my parents had their, their reasons and they made the same choice. Yeah. Chapter five is titled joining one gang or another. Um, when did it occur to you that the gangs you were in as a young man and the U S army were eerily similar? I was in Afghanistan 
in 2010 during my first deployment and we had gone into a firefight early on in the deployment it was our first solo patrol I don't know how familiar you are with the transition process when a unit comes into country but we were taking over the land from a company of 10th Mountain Division soldiers so you're together for about a week, two weeks, where they're showing you the, the lay of the land and you're signing over equipment, really transitioning from one unit to the other. After they left, it was our first patrol out of the wire when we first took contact. In coming back to the base, our first sergeant was there waiting for us and he gave us a pep talk that... I don't remember everything he said, but these words have never left my memories. And it was, always remember that we are the biggest, baddest effing gang in the world. And they're about to learn who the 101st is. As I hear these words and time goes by, you begin to see that in a lot of ways there's not much difference with the way people find community in hard times, the violence and camaraderie, it's the, the pressures that come with life or death situations, they are so similar and I think my first sergeant had it right. The US Army is the biggest, baddest gang in the world. So it really is a transition from what I was looking for in my youth to what I found as a young man, as an adult in my early 20s. The baddest gang on the planet with the best gear, too. <laughs> uh, page 48, the poem Stoop Labor Standing Up starts with a quote from the L.A. Chamber of Commerce in 1929 about how white people can't crouch like, quote, Orientals or Mexicans. This is, uh, maybe maybe you read the quote. I don't know if, if you want to read the poem, that's fine. The quote itself is particularly poignant. We're, thinking, we're talking about just about 100 years ago, this is the mentality that wasn't, you know, whispered to someone else. This is printed in some kind of document, some kind of pamphlet, I'm guessing, for the Chamber of Commerce. Tell us about this. I'll read the quote to start. Um, George P. Clements, L.A. Chamber of Commerce, 1929. Much of California's agricultural labor requirements consists of those tasks to which the Oriental, Asian, and Mexican, due to their crouching and bending habits, are fully adapted, while the white person is physically unable to adapt himself to them. Right before this book came out, I was doing a reading, and this one was just for a few people to talk about what um, a larger reading was going to involve, and a woman asked me, is that real? Are Mexicans and Asians really more capable to bend over? <laughs> this wasn't a hundred years ago, this was a few months ago. And the power of the written word holds weight. 
the old quote is what victor or history is always written by the victor the ideas and thoughts about laborers that they are unskilled that they are uneducated isn't true i was listening to guadalupe's husband tell this story about his first days when he came as a young man at 15 to come and work in the fields picking asparagus and it is backbreaking hard labor it doesn't require a special skill to to be fast and to truly make a wage able to sustain some family you do need technique but it is back-breaking work and the quote breaks my heart that this is the thought that someone would have just because of nationality or race. Yeah. Can't blame TV either. 1929. It wasn't that white people were couch potatoes in 1929. Page 78, there's more historical material. I think this would be a good poem to read. In English, I think, would suffice. The, the Locked Room Puzzle. The Locked Room Puzzle. Francisco and Ricardo. During the Great Depression of the 1930s, Mexican repatriation was executed with the same xenophobia that spurs hate and desire to build a wall today. Mexican Americans were labeled as a burden that furthered the economic downturn. Between 355,000 and 2 million Mexican-born people were sent back to Mexico, with 40% of those being American citizens. I was three when my incarceration began in this golden cage. The fingerprints, biometrics, personal data placed into a database, checking me, rechecking me, cross-checking all my information. I paid all the fees, showing up to every summons. I'm already labeled a criminal. There's no need to lure me home. You can just come to my home or my workplace and deport me. The cage door opens out into thirst. That ending is, is like another one that you would hear. It sounds like it's in Spanish when you hear that and works very well in English. I do not remember that particular thing. So to have those historical facts, I think when I read it, it sounded familiar, but I couldn't have told you that two million, up to 2 million people were sent back, many of them Amer- American citizens. It's um, It makes us think that the current time that we're in, and, and I do have a question about that um, is is not so uncommon in the history of this country. You have a brother that works for ICE, U.S. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement. And, you know, one reads a book like this, you think that those are the bad guys, but your brother <laughs> works there and makes a good living. Um, that's an interesting twist to all this, isn't it? It's hard to add a twist to a book of poetry. <laughs> um, poetry shouldn't have... Poet, poems may have a twist, uh-huh. but a collection of poetry to have a twist is unique, but it is part of the culture in Southern California and some cities. The expectation is that you either leave town or you join the federal government working either with the Border Patrol. I believe the statistics is 40% of ICE agents 
are Hispanic or Latino, the Border Patrol actively recruits um, Latino males and females to come and work the border because of our familiarity with the language and culture. So my mother actually was the one who told my brother when he was young with a child and a wife to go and join the Border Patrol where he worked, um, I don't remember the exact amount, I think it was like 10 to 15 years. And then he transitioned to ICE where he's now been there, I think seven years or something. That's something. That's something. Yeah. And a, and a fine man. I met him at your, uh, your wedding rehearsal dinner. Rat trails and battlefields, all the same. A short poem on page 126. Um, that also says a lot more than its three short stanzas. If you could read that in English, that'd be great. Rat trails and battlefields, all the same. Ricardo. I wrote a side note to my therapist while my brother was talking. I wonder what you would say about the sound of the helicopters flashing in my brain as he told me about following the rat trail in Arizona. Or is it Afghanistan? I don't know right now. Tell us about the rat trail. And when you read a poem like this, scratching the surface on your experience, your PTSD, how you deal with that, how poetry helps you to deal with that and put that in perspective. There's so much packed into these three short stanzas. I'd love for you to uh, flesh it out a little bit. Um, it's a realization I had when I had the opportunity to interview my own brother that there are so many similarities between the operations we conducted in Afghanistan and the operations conducted along the southern border. And we were talking. It was an interview just like this, having a conversation, and he's telling me about an operation that they were conducting where they had a bird overhead, and I don't know what brought it out, but it's just the way PTSD works sometimes where you get transported from where you're at into another place, another time. And as my brother was talking about his experience tracking a group of people moving along the desert in Arizona, it felt like we were back in Afghanistan in Kandahar with a bird overhead who was providing overwatch on our movement and just the familiarity of it. I do struggle with PTSD. I have a great therapist through the VA who I meet with regularly. And I really did stop and scratch on my notepad where I was taking notes that this is something that I need to talk to him about because I lost place during that interview, I lost play. I lost my place in that moment in time where I was at in time and space. So to be able to communicate these moments through poetry, it's what I feel poetry does great. What, but one of the best uses of this form is to go and share 
truth in history in a way that is plain, easy to understand, but yet uh, you can take this poem so many different directions. Mm -hmm. And ultimately use it for transformation. Mm -hmm. We're in a cultural moment when the governors of southern U.S. states are putting migrants on buses and planes and sending them to quote-unquote sanctuary cities. Never mind wars in Central America and capitalist economic policies that have created the need for people to leave these countries in search of something better. I ask you, who's written a book like this, who's had this experience, who comes from the culture that you come from, what are these governors and the people who support them missing? We want to make a life for ourselves. Every person wants to do the best they can to offer opportunity and hope to ourselves and our children. It's not easy to leave one's home behind thinking that you may never return. One's family, one's upbringing, everything a person knows for hope. And to go and to be put on a plane or a bus and just ship somewhere random, used as a toy or a pawn in the game of politics, is missing the humanity of the individual people involved. Immigration is a difficult problem for every nation. As a former soldier, I understand the needs for national security. As a business owner, I understand the economics and need for cheap labor. And we are all trying to do the best we can. But to go and to just use people in a game breaks my heart. And I wish people just could go and understand that they're humans that are being, that their lives are being affected. It's a reason why I wanted to write this book. So the next generations, my children, their children, understood the sacrifices that my parents made, those in my community, that these stories that are so quickly perishable are recorded and held, but also for those outside of the community, that they can understand maybe just the tip of the iceberg on why somebody would be motivated to leave everything that they know, have known for hope and... These are people, <laughs> like, breaks my heart. I was looking for a poem that I wrote about my experiences with my brother, and it's on page 82. I wrote this poem. I'll read the poem first. All this land to have fun and play a game. David and Ricardo. There are three players to this game. It begins when player one enters a field. How to play. Player one, survive, don't get caught. The longer you're in play, the better you do. Player two, catch player one. Limited travel beyond boundaries, unless stated otherwise, the faster you catch player one, the better you do. Player three, god mode. 
catch player one. No rules on travel within boundaries. Freedom to detain without due process. The more player one you catch, the better you do. If player one is caught by player two, he goes back to starting point. If player one is caught by player three, results may include indefinite detention, return to start point. Player two and player three play the game with impunity. Make new rules as you desire and change them when required. That is the way the game works. It's a childish game. It's a children's game. <laughs> that really says it, doesn't it, that last line? Yeah, it's a children's game. We can be more human than designing games like this is what I get is part of what I get from that. It's a beautiful book. I mean the whole project uh it is stunning in its conception and execution and um the only question I'd have is what do you hope people take from this book? I love my community. I love Eastern Washington. To me, it's the most beautiful land in the world and I hope people who read this just understand. I hope that when my community reads it, that they can go and just feel the love and care of all the people who have made the choice to come here. That one day my children can read it and understand the sacrifices that their parents made to give them the opportunities that... I have had that they have and for those outside the community I hope that they just learn a little bit about who we are that they can understand and see beyond just farm workers that laborers human beings human beings we had our reasons poems by Ricardo Ruiz and other hard-working Mexicans from Eastern Washington Ricardo, thanks for spending some time with us today. Thank you, Paul. It was a pleasure. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, Located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at CascadiaPoeticsLab.org.